Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph, broadcasting from Mexico City. On this edition, I will be featuring a conversation I had with A.K. Thompson, who is an academic and an activist I've known for a long time. And I was really interested in speaking with A.K. about work in the academic sphere that really visits the intersections of critical thinking about social movements, but that is based on a long-term engagement with those movements. I think that in an academic context, sometimes we can see situations where the theorizing about social movements is disconnected from the practice of being part of those movements for transformative change. A.K. Thompson's work, I think, is important in looking critically and asking difficult questions about how social movements can work to transform fundamentally some of the structural injustices that we face. We talk about the movement against police violence. We talk about labor movements and the climate justice movement. A.K. Thompson's work is important and it was really great to speak with A.K. here on Free City Radio. Here is our conversation. My name is A.K. Thompson and I've been involved in movement activity in one form or another most of my life. Um, and for the past, I don't know, almost 20 years, I feel like one of my major contributions has been to try to write about social struggle, both with the aim of clarifying the kinds of issues that arise within movement contexts that we sometimes struggle about, and also trying to respond to some of the scholarship about social movement struggle that, from my perspective, has often seemed to miss the mark. So in my own work as a movement-based scholar or radical intellectual, whatever you want to call it, you know, I've tried to generate knowledge that could be of use to movements and also to uh, try to intervene within the scholarship surrounding movements to clarify issues and to try to push those discussions further along. Thinking about um, the uh, importance of having a scholarship that thinks critically about, you know, structures of power and uh, you know, collective organizing that is trying to, you know, challenge the injustices that are perpetuated by, you know, whether it's, you know, an economic uh, system, colonial economics, or, you know, uh, capitalist manifestations. Um, often, there is a lot of writing in scholarship that talks about action and organizing at a grassroots level, but there is often a disconnect between the people who are organizing campaigns on the ground or organizing even just actions on the ground and uh, the academic space. Uh, and I think it's something important to talk about uh, is that sort of problematic dynamic uh, between uh, academic spaces and organizing spaces. And I think it's a very interesting uh, point that you raised. So can you just talk a bit about why that tension has been important for you to address and, and also just any other broader thoughts about um, the context of, um, you know, any other, uh, you know, writers or movements that have uh, been an encouraging point for you to, like, be inspired to carry forward this sort of um, work, uh, thinking work on this point? Sure. So I would say that, like, one of the fundamental characteristics of academic scholarship regarding social movements 
is that that scholarship tends to perceive movements themselves as the object of analysis, which is to say that scholars end up studying social movements. Um, and I think this approach inevitably produces a kind of distance or estrangement from movement activity itself, you know, so it's kind of like putting the struggle in a petri dish and trying to identify its characteristics, you know, maybe even try to predict how it's likely to behave. But from my perspective, scholarship is much more useful to movements when the starting question is one that's focused more around the social terrain of struggle. You know, how is the space of struggle organized? What are the opportunities for advancement? What are the possible obstacles uh, that we might confront? And ultimately, how can we go about winning? And I find that from my perspective, this approach became really important kind of early on in my uh, developmental journey as an activist, where I became very, very convinced about the inadequacy of a lot of movement tactics that we would use that were primarily about uh, trying to persuade those in power to be better, you know, to act more resolutely on our behalf. Um, and instead ended up focusing on, you know, how we could engage in direct actions that could be more disruptive or that could create alternatives uh, directly through our own practice. And, you know, in those, uh, in those moments, the question stopped being, you know, why is the bad thing bad? Uh, and started being instead, how can we create concrete change? But in order to answer that question, it's necessary to engage in some social investigation, not only an investigation of our own power and capacities, but also an investigation of the dynamics that define the turn of struggle, you know, what the openings are, what the possibilities are. So in developing my thinking along these lines, one of the first reference points for me had been the work of Dorothy Smith, who developed a, a sociological approach uh, that came to be known as institutional ethnography, and then the work of her student, George Smith, uh, who developed that work with an activist context um, and came to describe his work as political activist ethnography. You know, so for George Smith, some of the early campaigns that he was involved in as an activist where he was applying this approach uh, involved uh, resistance to the bathhouse raids in Toronto in the early 80s, and then fighting for access to, um, to drugs and what were then experimental treatments for people living with AIDS uh, toward the end of the 80s. And he pointed out that very often the activist approach to these uh, kinds of questions <clears throat> was inadequate in terms of developing social strategy or strategy around it. So you know, there's certainly no question that the police are homophobic, but it's not homophobia per se that enabled the bathhouse raids. There was something else going on. And what George Smith pointed out was that the uh, the way that the criminal code was written indicated that what was taking place in the bathhouses uh, could be classified as indecent acts and thus be subject to criminalization. So this narrowed the focus of the struggle to focus specifically on uh, decriminalizing 
um, what had previously been understood to be indecent acts. And it sounds obvious now that we think of it, but it's important to recognize, as George did, that at the time, the kinds of strategies that the movement was most interested in pursuing were either getting sexual identity to be recognized as a protected category, um, because it hadn't yet been a protected category within the framework of human rights law, and then also to uh, try to work on, like, creating more um, congenial bonds between the police and the the gay community, you know, through things like community liaison work or kind of like cultural understanding initiatives and so on. So that's where the movement was at. But George Smith's research pointed out that, you know, regardless of the disposition of individual police or the police as a whole, that you would still get uh, this kind of criminalization up until that moment that you changed the, you changed the law, you know, and you, um, broke the association between what was happening in bathhouses and this criminalization of what were understood to be indecent acts. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, But maybe, if you don't mind, could you dig in a a bit more? You talked about there was something else at play, uh, just thinking about these systemic structures and criminalization, and, and then why thinking a bit more critically about the first point you raised, which is this idea that somehow power can be convinced through like moral argumentation, like why being critical uh, to that framework was important um, in the context you're talking about, but also feel free to share any other contexts. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if we start from the standpoint that um, the people in power represent us and that their legitimacy is based on our consent, then it follows logically that we could say, okay, so if we register our disapproval and we demonstrate to them that there's a discrepancy between what they're doing and what we, the people, want, then it seems as though we could create a crisis of legitimacy. But this framework for political action, which has been, I'd say, the most prevalent one for a lot of social movement action in Canada and the United States and elsewhere uh, for much of the 20th century, presupposes a lot. You know, it presupposes that, you know, elected officials actually represent us rather than, um, you know, rather than the interests of capital, for instance. It presupposes that um, people are citizens whose claims will be recognized as being legitimate. Um, And it presupposes that um, those in power are going to be responsive when there's a discrepancy between popular will and what they're doing. And we've seen instances where that's happened. You know, we've seen instances where people have been able to make use of moral authority in order to secure gains. Um, but I think the the real challenge here is that um, ultimately none of those things can really be presupposed, um, that that's, that's not how things are organized. So it seems, from my perspective at least, that 
in order to figure out how to proceed then it's necessary to figure out you know where um where are the points within the social organization of power where it's possible to disrupt the um you know the procedures that allow relations um of ruling to unfold you know according to their own logic you know where can we become the wrench in the gears and in order to identify those points it's necessary to have a bit of an understanding of how power works that's different from the presupposition that um you know that the you know the authority that power has is predicated on the consent of the governed this is a really um important point that comes up in terms of thinking about this idea that uh, sort of the moral argumentation um, and the framework of like making uh, demands that assumes uh, uh, a common moral framework between those in power and social movements that this is quote unquote strategic right like that like this is actually solid strategy in terms of achieving like social change or transformation or etc um but like if we just think about the labor movement for example um it's obviously not working or climate justice yeah i think you know i think there was a a moment in the early to mid 20th century where as a result of past social struggles where um organized labor for instance demonstrated a capacity for disruptive collective violence that it was possible for it to then engage in something like negotiation that it won a seat at the table but it won that seat as a result of that demonstrated capacity for disruptive action for collective violence that was much more characteristic of labor struggles uh, in, in the late 19th century and early 20th century um but as a result of having won that seat of the, at the table what you end up seeing is a kind of atrophying of that collective capacity and then by the time that the um conditions start changing with the with the rise of neoliberalism uh what you end up with is a situation where the collective capacity has atrophied and you know moral appeals are no longer connecting because there isn't this sense of consensus uh and so you end up with a class struggle with only one side participating um you know under those conditions I, my sense is that even when uh confrontational actions uh, that happen uh within or alongside labor struggles are kind of like inefficacious or strategically questionable they nevertheless end up being useful because they they can help to remind us that there's another way to do politics that's not based on negotiated settlement that's not based on this idea that the most important thing is having a seat at the table um and i think that's an an important lesson it's hard to perceive though if um if it's not possible to uh, to recognize the way that this dynamic has developed historically and to recognize that there were other ways of proceeding that existed previously that might be more uh directly relevant to our present situation than the habits that have become so entrenched uh, but that no longer correspond to uh where we're at often when habits become so entrenched people have a hard time of zooming out 
and not just people, but structures of organization. Um, can you dig in a bit more to what you mentioned about labor and then maybe, you know, speak about any other context you would like, but the importance of sort of zooming out and thinking critically of like habitual processes of relation that actually are not resulting in the addressing of uh, either material realities or um, uh, points of, you know, um, the demands uh, of, of social movements or not even demands or like the realities that people are trying to address, right? Um, whether it's in a, in a yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that within the context of labor, one of the interesting things is obviously that the, you know, the strike continues to be recognized as a, a principal tactic available to labor for its struggles um, and that strikes by definition uh, are disruptive and they they raise the question of you know who owns and who controls this that in some ways they become moments of like micro sovereign contestation and it becomes possible within those moments for people to begin imagining like well why do we even need the boss you know um who does this belong to who who has the right to determine you know how it you know how it should proceed going forward but even within that context, a lot of times, number one, like strikes become more rare than they should be. Um, and then even when they happen, they often get reframed within the language of persuasion. You know, so they they end up being, even though they're like direct interventions into the organize, organization of a workplace, uh, they, they get framed as though they're the same as like making a moral appeal or making you know, making a, a persuasive argument so that those in power would act more resolutely on our behalf. Um, and I think, you know, this this kind of conflict where even in moments where there are these disruptive actions um, end up being framed uh, within the more uh, friendly or familiar language of persuasion, you know, that this is a really consistent characteristic um, that we see in like in movement discussion and also in scholarship around movements um, and then also in media accounts of social struggles. You know, one of the things that I've been focusing on recently in my work is what I perceive to be a real limitation in the scholarship and social movement studies, which has defined its object of an analysis uh, in such a way that it kind of precludes other possibilities of disruptive action. So in social movement studies, move what are understood to be like modern social movements emerge at the end of the 18th century and arise within the context of the advent of li liberal democratic states uh, and the public sphere and mass media that they presuppose um, something like recognition within the public sphere and the ability to both uh, take the state as a target, but also to presuppose that it's going to mediate or adjudicate disputes and kind of it will be the means by which uh, social movement claims are resolved. And obviously there were movements of this kind that began emerging at that time, but it's important to remember that 
you know, the end of the 18th century also coincides with the Haitian Revolution, for instance, where the tactics are very different. The tactics are burning down the plantation. And then if you look at the history of Black freedom struggles in the, uh, in the United States, they end up having very different characteristics than the repertoire of action associated with social movements and the scholarship, which is around like mass rallies or petitions, uh, demonstrations, uh, these kinds of things. When you look at the history of Black freedom struggles, what you see instead is histories of, you know, avoiding recognition as much as possible through actions like uh, sabotage or arson um, or uh, fugitivity. And then on the other hand, you see uh, moments of like direct confrontation that aren't mediated by claims um, but are about making it impossible for the status quo to, to continue. So we see this uh, dynamic develop pretty consistently um, up until emancipation and then even after emancipation, where it's only, only in the mid-20th century with the advent of the civil rights movement that the dynamics of the black freedom struggle and the dynamic of what scholars have identified as social movements begin to come together. And for some people, the civil rights movement becomes kind of the, the classic example of the social movement. But when we look at it historically, it's important to recognize that even in that moment, you know, the civil rights movement coincided with the long hot summers, you know, it corresponded with riots in Watts and Detroit and elsewhere. Um, and that same dynamic where the two traditions coexist um, continues even in our own moment where uh, the Black Lives Matter cycle of struggle, for instance, uh, contained both the the movement repertoire and also these moments of direct urban rebellion or urban insurrection. I think of two examples uh, also that come to my mind. The first is the anti-nuclear weapons movement where you had, you know, broad sort of quote-unquote social movement process, but then you also had targeted uh, direct actions and sabotage that confronted the... Um, infrastructural reality of nuclear weapons um, obviously which are uh, lead to the possibility of the annihilation of life or even like on a very more micro example or the you know very local example at least where where I live in Montreal Giogiagi uh, there's the context of the student strike in 2012 against the imposition of tuition hikes where you have the broad sort of union structure, social movement structure, but then you also have in parallel these like consistent um, direct actions. Yeah, I mean, I think we live in a moment where on the one hand, there is a kind of hegemony to the social movement paradigm, you know, where the, the actions that are sanctioned and recognized as um, being kind of the foundation for social movement action are things like mass rallies and demonstrations, uh, public speaking events, petitions, and so on. Um, but at the same time, it seems like people are coming to understand that there are real limits to that repertoire of action. That on the one hand, it's been incorporated in a way into the everyday functioning of states within kind of neoliberal democracies where there's official recognition 
of movements, but, um, you know, corresponding to that, a, a real reduction in the, you know, the scope or the consequence of the movements themselves. So if you think about um, the way that uh, George Bush responded to the mass mobilizations against the war in Iraq uh, in, you know, the months preceding the invasion, you know, he was celebrating them. He said, you know, this is an example of the kind of democracy we want to bring to Iraq. You know, but when we think back on those movement on those movements, uh, for the most part, they remained bound within the established social movement repertoire, and the marches were enormous. They should have been forces of extreme persuasion, and yet they weren't. You know, they had no real consequences in terms of the way that that invasion and destruction played out. Um, so I think people are beginning to recognize the limits and the inadequacy of that kind of framework. And yet at the same time, I think there's uh, some apprehension or aversion to the other tactics that are also familiar to us when we look at the history of social struggle um, because they move us outside of the framework of recognition and because as a result of that, they come with higher social consequences, whether respect to uh, criminality or whether with respect to intelligibility. Um, nevertheless, I think that we've seen uh, in recent years as a result of the uh, the kind of powerful uprising that took place in uh, 2020 following the, um, the murder of George Floyd. And then prior to that, the necessity of confronting Nazis on the street uh, that people are beginning to uh, recognize that there's a space for other kinds of disruptive actions that aren't about persuading power, but are about creating new social realities directly uh, through, you know, through concrete confrontational intervention. And it seems like we're in a moment right now where there's more space to talk about the validity and the importance of those kinds of um, interventions, but there's always a risk that it will be subsumed within the established paradigm, which has become less and less effective over time. Thanks for chatting today. Uh, it was really great to be here. Thank you. That was a conversation with scholar and activist A.K. Thompson. Thanks so much to A.K. for being on the program today. I would encourage everybody to look up A.K. Thompson's work. This has been another edition of Free City Radio. We air weekly on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. On CJLO 1690 a.m. also in Giojiage, Montreal on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. On CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesdays. On CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays. On CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, BC on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m. On Met Radio, 12.80 a.m. in Toronto at 5.30 a.m. on Fridays. And on CKCU, 93.1 FM in Ottawa on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. We are also a podcast. Look us up at Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Stefan Christoph, and I'll speak to you next week. <laughs>